everybody. Um, this is the Becoming a CG Pro podcast, and it's a great pleasure today to introduce to you um, Nick Jushishin. He is a, a good friend of ours, um, a professor in virtual production. Nick teaches at uh, Drexel University. Um, Nick comes from the world of uh, visual effects and has worked on some amazing projects, including uh, Benjamin Button, which won the Oscar for visual effects, um, worked at a lot of the, the big studios in the world and, and now um, working to help teach the next generation of people about uh, virt virtual production. And we'll probably talk about that quite a bit today. But uh, anyway, welcome, Nick. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. You bet. So, um, yeah, one question I'd like to ask everybody is kind of what got you started in all of this? What was your kind of your your path into computer graphics in the first place and then kind of how that led to virtual production? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, like probably a lot of people of my generation, um, you know, I was, of course, really uh, enthralled by movies. I mean, I think that really the idea, the summer blockbuster really emerged during my childhood uh, with things like Jaws and Star Wars. And, and like, it just started to come uh, after that. And uh, interestingly, I mean, as much as I loved Star Wars and, and Star Wars was what one, my favorite films, um, it was, you know, a year or so later, there was a television broadcast that was the making of Star Wars. And it was the first time I had ever seen anything about how movies were made. And that actually caught my imagination every bit as not much, if not more, than the movie itself. The fact that, you know, this huge, this universe that I had in my mind and I saw on screen and all this adventure. And you know, it was cobbled together with plastic models and, you know, different parts of different things. And, and, you know, essentially the blood, sweat and tears of a lot of really creative people. And uh, that just, that instantly captured my imagination. And it was something that oh, I, I want to do that. That's, that's great. And um, I lived on the, I live on the East coast. And so honestly, it was one of those kinds of things I, I set aside uh, in my mindset thinking like, ah, oh, it's all those cool kids that grow up in LA to get to do that. And, um, about 10 years after, uh, finishing undergrad, I had been working as a computer programmer, project manager type of thing. Um, really computers, desktop computers had reached the point where they could handle basic digital video. Mini DV had come out. And so the process of filming something at home, getting it into your computer and editing it the way, I had seen work done on uh, films back in the 70s and 80s. It's like, wow, I could start doing that. And it became a hobby, and then it became an addiction, and then it became a, you know, I could probably do this as a career now. I could probably chase this down. And I was the beneficiary of the fact that by the time I was really putting in effort in making a transition into that career, the film industry itself was going through a transition from the use of film to the use of predominantly digital tools. Um, at the time, digital cameras on a film set were, were not really a common thing. There were only a few projects that had been shot digitally at all. There were huge debates at the time were going on as to whether digital projection would ever be appropriate. You know, everything 
that was digital was a digital intermediate, you know, a DI where it was shot on film, scanned frame by frame by frame, and then processed frame by frame by frame in post. So um, this transition was happening as I was trying to break into the industry, and it worked out for me because most people in the industry had about as much experience with digital as I did coming in fresh. And so I was able to apply myself to learning tools and learning workflows and um, some new technologies were emerging at the time that artists in general didn't want to learn. So I was predominantly interested in getting into the industry and artists were predominantly interested in, in creating really amazing uh, images. So I, I stumbled across this this newfangled thing called match moving and tracking and integration. And it was all of the, you know, photographing Chrome balls and, and, and the mathematics behind high dynamic range imagery and, and creating lighting through uh, photography and uh, 3d tracking camera movements. And there's at the time, not many out of the box software tools for doing that. And so it was this area that most other artists, even ones that wanted to break into the industry, you know, you could just see their eyes glaze over. Like, can, can we get back to talking about textures? Can we talk about modeling again? Because like, those are things I understand. And so to me, it was like, okay, that's what I'm going to learn because it seems to be difficult for everyone else and not many other people want to do it. So I actually have a shot at getting in the door with this. Um, it's just math. So, uh, so that's what I applied myself to for a number of years, just you know, working at any kind of uh, project I could in this space. I mean, I think the other advantage of that um, particular tool set is that it was also something that absolutely was necessary for any moving camera shot in any project you had to track. And so um, it actually didn't take too long before I was able to get my toe in the door, work on some professional projects. And ultimately, like you mentioned, I, I really, really, really lucked out in, uh, getting into uh, digital domain at the time that they were working on, on Benjamin Button. So that was uh, definitely the kind of thing that it, where, where the stars aligned, where, it, you know, there was this opening, I was at the SIGGRAPH conference and it said, Hey, we're looking for trackers. I said, I do tracking and here's my demo reel. And I tracked this, here's an actress's head. And I tracked this thing for a professional project. They're like, so you know how to do that. And what software did you use? And it happened to be exactly the software that they were using in their pipeline. And so they, can you start on Wednesday? <laughs> so that, so that's, you know, how I got into computer graphics as a career. And um, the interesting thing, I think, coming into virtual production is that all of the tools that I ended up using in that pipeline on that project and many others uh, were photogrammetry and high dynamic range imagery and spherical capture and, all of those things really lend themselves to creating the photorealism that we're seeing being leveraged in, you know, real-time engines now. And so it was kind of a natural shift. Um, again, I lucked out. I uh, transitioned into teaching about 10 years ago. And when I joined Drexel University, um, at the time there was a graduate student working on this idea that he had seen how James Cameron had used virtual production in the production of the Avatar movie where he had a motion capture virtual camera rig on his shoulder and he could frame up 
shots and see in a digital viewfinder what was happening. And, um, you know, at the time, of course, they were using, you know, things like Vicon motion capture systems and uh, motion builder was, you know, some, something of an exotic tool at the time to, to realize all of that. But uh, this student recognized that, you know, that's kind of like that screen. It's, it's not too different than an iPad. And, you know, I can, I can develop something in Unity for an iPad and, and tracking, like I can do that with these Sony PlayStation Move controllers. And so I can write software for Unity with that. And so he basically built this like ad, you know, kind of bootstrapped uh, virtual camera system out of a PlayStation and a PC and an iPad. And that was his graduate thesis project. And it was phenomenal. And I mean, he ended up giving a SIGGRAPH talk and, and seeing his work is really what um, put planted the idea in my head. They're like, wow, this, this is really a thing. This, this is pretty amazing. I, I should probably pay some attention to that. So um, in the 10 years since about. I've been diving. Yeah, I think you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you've worked with him on a, on a few films yourself. I mean, he, he worked with uh, you guys on, I know, uh, Jungle Book and Lion King and, and some stuff. And, and now he's at a, at a major streaming service. Uh, I think he's pretty much heading, you know, he's, he's an executive in their uh, kind of virtual production space. So, um, you know, I, I think that's for me, one of the most exciting things about being a teacher is that it's not that it's just this dump of, well, here's what I did when I was in, in the industry, but it's more of a, a back and forth shared experience. And so it was really this student's work that planted the idea for me, myself, to kind of really pursue this uh, area of investigation. And, you know, I've ran the animation visual effects program at Drexel for about six years. And over that time kind of managed to convince them that, you know, we have this game design program that uses game engines and designs games with it. And that's, that's great. It's a lot of call for those uh, students in industry. And we have this animation visual effects program, which really focuses on the, this uh, traditional post-process pipeline, you know, using tools like Nuke and Maya and um, everything, Houdini, everything you would see in a uh, typical feature film industry. But there's this, you know, whole new space that's gaining traction there's you know virtual reality augmented reality headsets are now available for a couple hundred dollars to the public you know we've been working in this space for years but it's always been really really expensive and kind of like specialty industries like the military or aerospace that that was leveraging them but you know this is really becoming commonplace at the consumer level and we really should have a dedicated degree program that focuses on the unique challenges of this because you know creating a world that actually envelops somebody it's a different challenge than than filling out a rectangular screen uh, it's not necessarily always the same thing as you know, creating a, a, an interactive video game but it's also not the same thing as is rendering out frame by frame a finished product and so um so the the college the university went for it and, and now we have a program in immersive media, which includes VR, AR, but also all of our virtual production work is done in this space because it's that overlap of real-time engines with the techniques and technologies that we've also been using in Anim and VFX. Amazing, yeah, what a uh, really interesting path and really cool to hear the story of what inspired you and what kind of drew you into it in the first place. And there's definitely some, um, resonance there with with my own 
journey and being inspired by Jurassic Park and then reading the making of book and just that 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 being the thing which really drew me in because I was a nerd still am and really interested in kind of seeing behind the curtain and figuring out how how it all works and then yes yeah, sounds like continuing to follow that um that strand and <clears throat> that curiosity and and letting that guide you into what interests you the most and staying staying with that and following it as the industry has evolved mm-hmm. yeah super cool so um yeah talking talking about uh virtual production um as you kind of landed there with your your current uh, passion in virtual production we can see from your background you're obviously clearly very keen on uh, <laughs> virtual production um background and foreground in fact um so yeah i'd love to hear you, your um kind of take on on virtual production and what it is because i think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions or maybe just generalizations about virtual production out there in the world as some people have seen certain famous projects beginning with M that um, that uh, is becomes what people think virtual production is all about but I know it's about a lot more than that and I'd love to hear your your take on what you consider it to be sure yeah so you know in terms of what I consider it to be in in, in the potential honestly this this little setup that you know for those of you that are seeing this as video um i have these you know fictitious heads up displays floating in front of me holographic displays in the background all of this is being done in unreal engine um and so i'm i'm streaming live in in my home um but i'm able to create this 3d environment around myself and and honestly i use this day-to-day uh, throughout COVID as my means of engaging with my students when we're doing remote classes. And um, the this is a little bit of, I practice what I teach. Um, a little bit, a little bit of this is uh, genuine purpose-driven functionality. So one example is that my camera is positioned in front of my desk. And, and so I have to deliberately look at that because the computer screens that I'm using, I have two different computers, one on either side, and they're off axis from the camera lens. And so if I turn my head to look at the Zoom meeting in progress here, then um, you know it, it looks like I'm looking away from the camera. I'm looking, I'm just going to move the hologram over so I can see you a little bit better in, in my Zoom meeting. So if I look to the, my computer screen and there is no, I'm just going to move the hologram out of here. If there's nothing there, it, it kind of looks like I'm not paying attention. Like if I'm not speaking, I'm just, I'm looking away from the camera and maybe I'm reading email, maybe I'm doing something else. So I really, in, in one way, I really wanted to reassure my own students that if they're talking, that even if I'm not looking at the camera, I'm, I'm watching them, I'm listening to them, I'm, I'm looking at the work that they're showing. Uh, so that's kind of where the idea of bringing in these um transparent holographic displays came in is that now I can look off axis. I'm physically looking at a computer screen on my desk and, you know, trying to position this uh, virtual production, you know, fictitious and transparent hologram in front of me so that now I'm, I'm projecting what's happening to me in the real world is, yeah, Ed, I'm looking right at you right now in our meeting. So um, for me, this is some of the excitement of what the capabilities of virtual production are, um, because I think it has applications way beyond 
just entertainment and just broadcast. And, you know, it's kind of amusing to say just entertainment because that's such a huge industry. And there are so many amazingly, uh, you know, forward thinkers in these industries is really the the pinnacle of the computer graphics research industry is happens in in entertainment and broadcast um so i don't mean to diminish the value of of those industries but at the same time there's there's so much more that, that can be done um and so you know the other thing that excites me about this is that i am doing this on a desktop computer at home i mean it's a it's a really nice computer that, that it could, could play, you know, it could play a, a video game. Any, any current video game capable computer is capable of doing virtual production. And I don't have an LED wall. I, you know, I don't have a motion capture system in, in this office. Um, you know, we ha I have that back at the studio and all, but, but when I'm at home, I'm able to work in virtual production and able to create virtual production without any of that, highly specialized equipment. I mean, Unreal Engine is available to be downloaded for free. Uh, and so if you have a computer with a decent graphics board that can run Unreal Engine, you could download the software for free and, and get started with it. You could create wholly computer imagery-based animations and, and shows. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in the uh, Unreal Fellowship not too long ago. And our, all of those projects were 100% computer generated imagery so there was no live action whatsoever um so you know you didn't need even a specialized green screen studio so um you know i think that the the actual accessibility of this technology is very very exciting i mean really i've taught high school students how to get started in it and of course college students and so i think that the barrier to entry is actually lower than people realize and so that's that's pretty exciting to me as well. Amazing, yeah. So I'm hearing you being on a Zoom call as being virtual production, as first one one strand of virtual production, um, and then obviously the the show beginning with M, and that is also virtual production. Um, that's why I, I treat it a bit like Macbeth these days, like as, as a word you're not supposed to say in the virtual production circles, Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. I, sure. Go. Yeah. Broke, no, absolutely. Broke, I mean, there's, there's this. no, yeah, there's, there's no denying. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I am absolutely a hardcore Star Wars fan and, um, you know, the emergence of the, the streaming series, the Mandalorian is definitely, you know, one of the great high points of the, you know, history of Star Wars lore and, 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 things created um for star wars I, I would argue that like prior to mandalorian like maybe you know rogue one was a great you know example of what could be uh done in, in that universe you know in terms of an entertainment standpoint but you know very rightfully so um you know the, the company that was created to create the original visual effects for star wars industrial light and magic you know was 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 originally launched, you know, for the creation of that 1970s film, and so much of what is give, just a given today in digital imagery, uh, you know, really gravitated and, and and came out of there, right? So, you know, you look at Pixar and the entire industry of fully 
computer animated feature films. Pixar started out as a computer project inside ILM that was eventually spun off. I mean, it was, you know, and it was spun off potentially as a computer company uh, that ultimately transitioned into to creating, you know, some of the best computer animated films in the world. Um, you know, we edit video digitally on, you know, on our handheld devices, on iPads, on, on, on all the desktop computers. And some of the earliest uh, examples of that were, uh, you know, edits. And I think it was the Avid system, I think, grew out of ILM. The, 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 the seeds of that began as a software project inside ILM. Was so it's no um, surprise. The edit Droid, I think it was yeah, referred to. Yeah, I think to. it started out as Edit Droid yeah. um, and eventually becomes Avid and, and then, you know, all of these tools. Um, you know, I mean, just Photoshop, right? I, you know, the, the fact that there's this verb in the vernacular of, uh, of regular everyday consumers, you know, it was born out of some work between, you know, an ILM uh, modeler who, you know, was computer savvy, whose brother happened to be, you know, majoring. And I think he was doing a grad degree, if I remember the, the history correctly, uh, in computer science. And kind of the, the two of them kind of collaborated on this idea of making it so that computers could edit photos, you know, and again, so there, there's this, I, this thread of ILM through all of that. And of course, we're John talking Noel. about Photoshop. Yeah. John yep. Knoll um, and his brother, uh, you know, developing Photoshop. Uh, and, you know, that's such a staple of, of the entire photography industry. Um, and all of this is, you know, it has threads that lead back to ILM, you know, John now, of course, is, is, um, a principal lead at ILM and, and of course intimately involved with the production of Star Wars. So, you know, I, I think that there's, there's no shame or there's, you know, in the idea that, that you hear Mandalorian is yet again, another, you know, example of Star Wars leading the charge in, in new technology. Um, you know, again, going back to my transition into the film industry in the 2000s, you know, when I mentioned that there were very few films being shot with digital, well, it was, if I remember correctly, episode two was shot on, you know, Sony Cine Alta cameras that, that was, you know, to my, I, I could be wrong on this, but I really feel like that was like a first major tentpole feature film that had been shot digitally. Like even episode one was shot on 35 millimeter film converted to digital. And, um, you know, it was a passion of George Lucas to to really try to push the industry towards digital uh, due to all of the, the pipeline, the workflow advantages in that space. So again, it's no surprise that here we have uh, ILM and Lucasfilm, you know, developing a new uh, Star Wars property in Mandalorian and leveraging all of the latest technology in an entirely new way and yet again, transforming the industry. So um, I think it's incredibly exciting. I, I can recall seeing LED walls shown uh, years ago at uh, SIGGRAPH conferences. And, and even, you know, I, I just, of course, I'm an idiot. I was just looking at them. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's a cool idea, but I don't know if that would ever really, like, would that really work in front of a camera? I mean, you could still, there's Moria patterns. There's so many challenges to solve. And, you know, it should be no surprise that, 
the folks at ILM were the, you know, a big part of, of pushing that forward and, and, and making something just absolutely amazing, compelling. And, and of course, the whole point is that the workflow improves. It improves the creativity of the directors, the, the performances of the, the actors. Um, it adds versatility and speed to the production. And so um, there's just so many advantages to, to you know, moving forward with these tools like LED walls and volume stages. Um, so it's just, you know, for me, it's an, it's an incredibly exciting time because, you know, it was, it was this transition in uh, paradigms in the industry that helped me get in and, and ultimately, you know, do what I always dreamed I really wanted to do. And so I see that same type of opportunity available to my students and others that are interested in breaking into the industry because of, this new paradigm shift, there's so much demand to put it to use. And one of the main limiting factors is just how many people are skilled enough in the tool sets to actually put it together. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of job opportunities for folks. And, and so there's similar kind of opportunities that I was able to leverage back in the old days, <laughs> um, you know, are, are now available to newcomers today. So that's an exciting thing. Yeah, that absolutely. I agree. Yeah, I'm getting more and more requests from people in the industry for people because we also have teach classes in virtual production and and they people are becoming aware of that and industry is really in in desperate need of people with good skills uh, and it's they finding it very difficult and actually you know one of the good things about that it creates an opportunity for people to jump into something that's not only exciting but also that there is demand for which is a good place to be in, in a place where there is demand and also that the the rates available because there is a shortage um of supply are, are pretty good i mean really better than uh, most other areas of visual effects currently so definitely is a good thing to jump in on yeah sure. I, I think there's there's a, a an overarching business strategy called the blue ocean strategy i think something along those lines where you know, if you you go out to the deep blue ocean, there's fewer fish to compete against. You know, you get closer to the shore. You know, there's just all all the organisms are competing for the same resources. So, um, right now, uh, you know, if you're someone who is skilled in virtual production, it definitely seems that you're swimming in a in a blue ocean area right now. Um, there is this whole innovators dilemma going on, where I think that you know prior to uh, the Mandalorian really putting visibility of this tool set to the forefront of the industry, there was a bit of an advantage dilemma in that, like, I don't know why I want to do that. Like, you know, I, I already know how to do all these other things. Um, but I think that, you know, with productions like that and, and so many others now, so, you know, routine, you know, with the onset of COVID and, you know, distancing uh, work restrictions and things to protect everyone's safety. It also just happens to be that virtual production is well suited to distance uh, production. Right. People can remotely connect to uh, create the assets that are used. You know, you could easily, you could create a TV show, you know, involving uh, a fire truck driving its way through Seattle, you know, just by having the fire truck sit still in a studio and have, you know, a few LED walls and, and computer controlled lights around it. And um, you can shoot a season's worth of 
uh, fire truck driving scenes, you know, in, in a couple of days inside a, a, a nicely controlled uh, studio. And, and so there's so many other examples and advantages to it. It definitely provides some new challenges for us as educators, you know, because again, the, the thing that's really important about being that valuable virtual production practitioner is that you actually know how to use those tools, right? There's, there are nuances to, you know, when, when you're using the uh, end display technology that drives these LED walls, there are, there are nuances to that, that, um, you know, the whole point of trying to find people that are experienced in it, that you just have to be aware of, you know, if you're, you know, some of it starts with having a good three-dimensional model of the actual surface of the wall. And, you know, that three-dimensional model needs to be prepared a certain way. You know, it needs two sets of texture UV spaces so that there's one that, that goes edge to edge and another one that's proportional to the sur surface of the LED wall. So as educators, we do need to be able to provide experiences to our students to practice these things. So they do genuinely have that experience when they, uh, you know, go out into the world, because without that, then you're, you're, you're unprepared to step into that role and like, Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so it, it definitely puts us in um, some creative positions in terms of being able to uh, teach how all of this technology works, how it fits together, how it integrates. So um, I'm lucky enough that the studio, the, university that I work at Drexel in Philly, um, we've, you know, in part because of that grad student, you know, back 10 years ago, you know, we ended up building our green screen stage in a space that cohabitates with a Vicon motion capture system. And, and it wasn't much of a stretch. We've, we had been working in, you know, immersive media before VR headsets were common involved dome projection or cave projection. And so we had cave projection screens, really big projection screens around already. And it really didn't take for us very many steps to really connect the dots and say, okay, well, we can get end display working on a dual laser projector rear projection screen. And it's in the same space as our Vicon mocap system. So now we can track cameras and, and do a full virtual production wall shoot in our existing studio and have students gaining this experience, um, even though we may not necessarily have the absolute latest same exact LED wall technology that might be at a studio. I think a lot of studios are, you know, doing everything they can to bootstrap these uh, tools together. And so our students kind of get that experience by uh, getting their hands on not only the software, but the hardware technologies, understanding how to keep everything in synchronization. Like as soon as you throw a projection system or an LED wall system into the same space as a camera, as a motion capture system, all of those systems need to be in precise synchronization so that you don't start to see those, you know, frame scrolling artifacts and all kinds of other sync issues. And, and so, you know, getting our students that opportunity to have hands-on uh, time with these tools is, uh, is, is really exciting and, and it's great to do and, and really important to do. So um, it is it's yeah. definitely a challenge though. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, keeping up with it is, is a challenge because it's, it's evolving so quickly, and, but mm -hmm. uh, you're in a, in a similar position in, in a way to ILM and being able to have an R and D space where you can play with the stuff and put it together and, um, 
can you tell me a little bit because i know that um you you touched on some really interesting stuff going through that um and i, I know that everybody gets this impression it's all about the led wall and the mandalorian and there is all these other flavors that you're describing um and led is expensive and kind of prohibitively expensive to to a lot of people so um as you mentioned uh, another solution in in setting up um a projection based system can you explain the couple um just kind of briefly how um, you would go about putting something like that together and kind of what it involves yeah absolutely um i will say i'm a little uncomfortable about the direct analogy of, of what i do to ilm because they're literally in a you're, you're basically the same universe. as ilm no not at all not not even <laughs> close uh you know there's you know they're literally in their own universe it's just amazing what they're doing I, but i uh, hear you but, but I, you are you know you're doing something similar in a way at the, to the beginning of that where you're you have a space and you're you're playing with these new technologies and you're exploring what they can do and that you've in, and one of the things i love about virtual production is the fact that it's been such a great leveler you know ilm has grown to this kind of monolithic huge almost impenetrable uh studios to some people I, I i actually made it in there at some point it was a childhood dream of mine to be there and, and i was absolutely like a kid in a candy store when i turned up there because i grew up dreaming of being there and wanting to do it and and it was very hard i got rejected a lot of times before i got in um but eventually made it um uh and they're, they're doing their thing but no this this technology has has broken it open it's like you said it's made it available to so many more people there's not um to do maybe a mandalorian type thing there's a barrier to entry for that for sure there's a huge cost barrier to entry but to do it at all there there isn't and you you've proved this with what you're doing and um yeah i'd love to to hear your take on um kind of how you can do some of this indie style um in in a way that's much more accessible to people than having to fork out a hundred grand a day just for a wall on top of which you'd have to spend a lot more to to run something like that yeah absolutely and i think you know looking to ilm for inspiration you know the most important thing to take away is the pioneering spirit i mean and it just yeah. you know looks at a problem and and will work towards solutions for it. I mean, I think there's a great documentary that I think might be underappreciated from The Mandalorian, and um, and that's on uh, the the work that they did to create an actual physical model of the ship, uh, the Razor Crest, and and shoot motion control. Where and, and this is John Knoll again, you know worked with a really small team just dedicated to the idea of, you know what, we'll build our own motion control rig from scratch and, and photograph this 3D model. And, and in that documentary, John talks about how the exercise of doing that and, and the creation of those shots, not only generated shots that were used in the series, but also uh, helped advance the level of quality on the, the CG side of things. And so, you know, there's a lot to be learned just from that pioneering spirit and the determination and absolutely i think that virtual production uh it at um kind of like the entry level for those of us that are working from home or our academic you know our teachers or students um the tool sets actually exist for us at the consumer level so you know going to that example of the led wall um you know our our virtual production wall at my studio is 
literally something we rescued from scrap. It was being thrown away. It was an obsolete rear projection screen. And um, we saw that it was being thrown away and, and was like, no, we'll take it. You know, we'll, we'll find a place to keep it. And so we didn't spend a single dollar on, on the, on the wall, the physical wall itself. Um, so that was number one. It's just like, just keep an eye out for stuff, stuff that can be useful. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the technology of the LED wall itself, you know, has its groundings in, you know, films from a hundred years ago that were using rear projection and, you know, front projection, rear projection, you know, you have a projector, light shooting through it. The imagery of that is either bouncing off of a wall uh, or projecting through some type of surface uh, has been around for about a century uh, at the very least. It's been used in theater. Uh, you know, Pepper's Ghost is, is a, a variant of this. And so these tools keep coming around again. And so uh, for our own virtual production wall, we, we cobbled together a pair of uh, laser projectors. So we, we're school, we have lots of projectors. And so, you know, a pair of laser projectors. Um, there's a software company called Scalable Displays that actually um, creates software that was intended for things like planetarium domes and, you know, large scale museum and, and uh, you know, other types of event uh, projections to align now you just set up your projectors in approximately the right places where their their imagery is overlapping, and then you just use a, a camera and scalable displays to kind of essentially calibrate all of those projectors into a single display. And so we were able to stack you know these two laser projectors and uh, project them onto a single screen, overlapping. Use this um, fairly common software that's been around for a long, 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 long time uh, to basically make it so that those two projectors would reliably always project pixel for pixel exactly on top of each other. So why is this important? Well, those projectors are a resource that we already have access to. And even if you were to buy those projectors brand new, um, the cost of buying those projectors brand new and the software to calibrate them is less than 10% the cost of uh, a similar, like, purchasing or even renting an LED wall. Um, so like, I think, you know, you'd mentioned something about like a six figure uh, rental for an LED volume on a day basis. A day. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. It, it costs less than 10% of that day rate. You know, if you were to buy those projectors brand new and part of that is because I, you know, if you look at what, a, what the cost of a 10,000 lumen or 15,000 or brighter projector, I mean, even that is, plural tens of thousands of dollars. But when you get under that 10,000 lumen value, the, the price of the projector drops like crazy. So that was why we stacked two of them. We had two, you know, relatively inexpensive projectors, um, you know, each of them less than $5,000. And by having them be able to overlap perfectly, now we have this, you know, more than 10, we were over 10,000 lumens between the two of them. Um, and they're perfectly aligned. And now we have all of the, the light value, the contrast that we would want uh, to be able to practice virtual production, just like you would with an LED wall. Um, so, you know, again, we're privileged to have that studio space and, and the ability to, to pull in these projectors and, and do all of that calibration. Um, you know, that that's really wonderful. But some of the things that, you know, we can also do with that is that, you know, just mentioning that end display technology, 
also hinges on having a good 3D, an accurate three-dimensional model of the surface of that screen. And, um, you know, traditionally that might be a prohibitive thing to like bring in a proper LiDAR scanner to do that. But uh, you can get iOS devices, you know, Apple would be happy to sell you a consumer, you know, cell phone or iPad um, that has LiDAR built into it. And you can get a, a really good three-dimensional model with, you know, accurate measurements using that consumer tool. And, and you know, we could, basically, that's exactly how we 3D scanned our uh, projection surface so that we had an accurate three-dimensional model of that. Um, and then downstream from that, you know, again, we do have a motion capture system already in the same space. So it was just connecting the dots of tools that we already had to be able to so create the that. With the screen, um, once you've done the scan, presumably you mm -hmm. then have to remodel it so it's a tidier model on top of that. Mm -hmm. But basically, using you're using the lidar as a guide to give you the accuracy. Exactly, right. So with with the lidar scan, we could get an, an accurate, uh, approx you know, an accurate scan of the surface itself, and you know, it's not it's not professional lidar. Uh, quality, but you know we can see where the corners are. We can see where the surface is, and um, then yes, in a standard digital content creation DCC tool, we we tend to use Maya, um, but anyone could use Blender for free and any number of tools. We could essentially three dimensionally trace that three D scan model and um, use that clean model that we created by hand. A very, I mean, you know, when you're used to teaching students how to you know 3d model characters performance characters and props and rooms and settings and vegetation and all that suddenly you know creating a 3d model traced from a, a scan of an essentially flat or curved surfaces yeah, yeah we can do that that's no problem um so from that we were able to create that model and really you don't even need that lidar scan um from uh you know an, an ios device you could use photogrammetry, uh, which is just taking lots of photos from lots of different angles. And they're using those photos and software. There's a free tool, I think, called Meshroom. Um, you know, it's common to have uh, photogrammetry software. I think uh, Autodesk, if you're a school, you know, a student and or a teacher can use Autodesk tools uh, at no charge in yep. teaching situations. And so Autodesk Reality has a tool is also very cheap. As well, reality capture to... it's owned by epic is very inexpensive yeah you only pay yeah. on a per skin actually paper image you know, per yeah paper image type of basis it's a, and even it's about you know, 20 cents for a 200 image model exactly cheap. dedicated yeah. tools like uh agisoft has a meta shape and and you know again in the educational uh market they actually have discounted software and i think it's under a hundred dollars to get that so you know you could create a photogrammetry scan with just a, a collection of, you know, less than a hundred photos. And then with a single reference measurement, like, okay, I know that the length of this rod is six feet, you know, now you've got a proper scaled, uh, you know, essentially very similar to a LIDAR scanned model. Um, and all of this said, like, again, you know, we're, we're kind of privileged to be able to have that studio, to have this big wall, to have a mocap studio. But the interesting thing is that, um, 
you don't necessarily need to have all of that. You could use just a computer monitor or just a television uh, with, you know, maybe miniatures in front of it or um, just a very large screen and you could do kind of head and shoulder shots. Uh, again, if the screen is completely flat, well, the 3D model is pretty trivial to make. It's just a two-dimensional plane. And so with a, a few good reference measurements, you can model that accurately in 3D. And even the motion capture system, you can use uh, you know, a consumer Vive uh, VR system, you know, the, the concept that tracks that VR headset through space and the handheld controllers and the little tracker pucks. It's exactly the same as a mocap system. It might not be quite as precise. It might not be tracked as accurately in synchronization with your camera frames, but you can absolutely practice uh, all of the uh, core steps of that production with a setup like that. And you don't even need the Vive system, by the way. Um, again, in academic settings, Autodesk software is available at no charge. And there are um, Unreal Engine Live Link plugins for Maya and Motion Builder. So really, you could open up Unreal Engine for free. Um, and you can open up Maya. And with the Live Link plugin, put a camera in Maya and just move that camera around. And in real time, by connecting that in Live Link, you're now moving a camera around in Unreal Engine. And it's exactly the same principle as um, you would use if you had you know, a six-figure motion capture system. In fact, um, I know that most, uh, many, many, many um, motion capture virtual production pipelines will take the streaming data from the native motion capture system, whether it's Vicon, OptiTrack, or whatever, and live stream that into Motion Builder to be relayed into uh, Unreal Engine. So um, the practice of you know opening up Motion Builder, which again, software that's been around for like 20 years at least or more, um, and, and animating and moving a camera around inside Motion Builder and then driving a Unreal Engine camera with that, you're doing almost literally what's happening on, on a professional stage uh, that's, that's using these technologies. Yeah, and go, going back not too far to Jungle Book, that was kind of how that worked, being driven by Motion Builder, but then kind of being rendered through Unity and Photon on top of that. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's still useful in the process, even though it's been around that long. Some other, obviously, tools are competing with some parts of it, but... Um, Still, still yeah, a big think, player in the space, especially with manipulating the the mocap and cleaning it and editing yeah, it. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I did get involved in early on uh, was motion capture cleanup, and and one of the the first motion capture tool I ever learned to use was Motion Builder back in those early two thousands. I think I I still have a a, a manual from two thousand two, and it's surprisingly still relevant <laughs> today <Similar. laughs> um, yeah but the uh you know and and that i believe was the you know the the software hub that was being used um you know for in the production of avatar i think you can go and, and look at mm. behind the scenes virtual production being demonstrated in you know james cameron teams working on on that and i think motion builder was the the real-time graphics engine that was displaying the animated you know aliens and creatures for the live action talent being filmed and um, it was also being used to, to create the imagery for the um, for the virtual production, the virtual camera system and, and things like that, because it was so well suited for taking 
live streamed motion capture data and you know in real time creating camera or character animation with it. So um, I, I know that there are a number of tools that are actually, you know, deliberately, you know, Unreal Engine. Um, and I know, um, you know, it's no secret side effects, you know, with Houdini, there's a, there's quite a few tools that are really, really working concertedly to, to, re, you know, get what the functionality, the value functionality of motion builder natively within their own, um, ecosystems um and and they've made great strides in that but even so like there's still there's still just things that i you know i feel like i can do in motion builder very quickly very easily um and very intuitively that it just isn't quite there in these other tools so they're working at it i'm sure that they'll get there eventually Um, yeah it doesn't seem like uh you know motion builders you know going you know developing a whole lot of amazing, you know, new functionality right there. Um, and so, uh, so I'm sure it won't be too long before these other tools really catch up to that. Um, I mean, Houdini is a, a really interesting yeah. style of doing it too, because it's typically doing it typically procedurally so that a lot of the setup and, and work that you do is non-destructive and procedural and, you know, that there's some huge advantages to doing it doing it in that way they were doing it in a really crazy way too they're actually doing it in sops which is geometry not like mm-hmm. an actual skeleton as such it's i mean it, skeletons are just points effectively but mm-hmm. um they're they're using actual geometry for the skeleton and there's and given that you can actually run the skeletons through all of the operations that you've got available to geometry suddenly you could run it through a deformer and have the skeleton deform in some crazy way you know it literally it's kind of kind of mind blowing, but seeing these people doing that is really really exciting. Absolutely, you know, and I'm excited to see um, side effects and Epic, you know, kind of you know working together. I know Epic, um, I think, invested in side effects. Uh, there are a lot of natural synergies between those solutions uh, mm-hmm. because Houdini is you know this procedural tool where you you kind of build out a set of instructions for the for the software to execute through you know graphically through using node trees and and um you know essentially decision networks now do this now do this instead of a traditional timeline approach and and that's very much similar to the approach of using a real-time game engine for interactive games because you want to set up when you're creating a, a game in, in an engine like that, you're, you're setting up rules for what is to happen when, you know, the, the user is, you know, accelerating the character, like, okay, I, my character's standing still. And then they push the joystick forward and the character starts to walk. And then they push the joystick really far forward or they press a button. And now the character needs to run or jump or, you know, do an attack. And, you know, the, there's no animation. There's no uh, predetermined director deciding what's the framing of the camera and uh, at what point in the story does this attack happen? You know, there's a user and there's millions of users in the world. They're all going to make their own decisions about when that happens. So, you know, a game engine software is designed very procedurally so that, okay, when this button gets pushed, I need to transition from this animation to this animation based on what state I'm currently in. And, um, you know, that's very much how Houdini, uh, projects are built in, you know, I usually, um, when I'm teaching Houdini, I like to use crowd sims as kind of like the gateway 
uh, gateway drug to, to Houdini because it, a crowd sim touches on so many of the core tool sets of, of you know, texturing and rendering and the geometry and bringing in an animated skeletal mesh and, and, and iterating that and, and instancing and, and then decision trees, you know, I'm, I'm running away now it's, you know, now it's safe. I don't need to run. Um, and all of those uh, constructs in Houdini are, are not entirely dissimilar from the same type of uh, arrangements in, inside, you know, something like Unreal Engine for games. Yeah, I, I didn't know you uh, taught Houdini as well. I, um, I also do teach uh, Houdini, yeah. haven't done for a, a few months, but um, yeah, it's cool. It's an it's a incredible tool. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely have to, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Deborah Isaac um, that she, I, I dabbled with teaching in Houdini and I, and I, I can introduce people to it and, and, and get them hooked on it. And then I kind of pass them on to Deb Isaac. And uh, so, so we have her teaching a lot of our core Houdini classes. And um, so that's, you know, we definitely have like a track in Houdini and our, our, our program is actually like one of those Houdini certified uh, partners and just like we are with Epic for, for Unreal. Um, and, cool. but it's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a different world and it's always good to have someone who really specializes in that, in those spaces to come in. And, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with people like you that are so skilled in so many tool sets. Um, you know, it's a lot of times you can find someone who's, Who's a who's a generalist, and I feel like I'm more of a generalist myself, um, and and knows a bunch about a, lots of different tools, uh, and then there's just the amazing things that specialists can do because just they live, eat, and breathe this tool mm. set, and it's just like deep dive. Um, and, and I think my experience with you is that that you've you've got a really amazing blend of both of those things. So yeah, it's really cool. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I I think. Uh, I beat my head against the wall to try and earn some of those skills, but um, and I'm definitely a yeah, generalist as well. Um, and try not to spread myself too thin, which I think is a good tip for anyone starting out. And I definitely didn't start out by trying to learn everything at the same time, but kind of periodically switching from one thing, focusing to something else, but focusing on that to to be able to go as deep as possible. But there, there's always like like you say, the specialists that then take it from there and focus on it all the time. So those like animators are a good example. They they just do that all day, every day, and they get extremely good at it. And I can animate a character, but if I wanted somebody to to do it properly, um, or quickly at least, I would definitely hire a real animator, I would say. Um yeah. I've, we have a, a couple of questions coming in uh before we oh, wrap. I'd love to sure. ask Absolutely. a couple of those from the audience. Um so one, which is a, a big question possibly. Um, uh, hi, Nick, what do you think about where the industry will be 10 years from now? Well, that, that's a big I'm, question. I'm just going to say that's, that's, that's like the impossible question, you know, because <laughs> I mean, I can say that, you know, my first introduction to virtual production happened 10 years ago and it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, you know, I had lots of moments like, oh, that's interesting. I should go into, into that. So I, just because I happened to, to be intrigued by virtual production 10 years ago, and here it is like, you know, uh, a, 
it's developed into you know a mainstream kind of thing. Um, there were plenty of non-mainstream things that I was also interested in pursued, and, and you know they didn't necessarily explode the way uh, virtual production has today. So I'll, I'll just start out saying that I'm in no way clairvoyant. So um, we won't I, hold I do, to it. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll bring the recording I mean, think, back ten years and judge you against it. <laughs> there's no escaping the fact that technology constantly improves, and it it seems to generally improve faster than anyone who's currently involved believes is possible. You know, so, you know, the, the thing that I, I feel that I saw happening in the film industry as I was entering was there was a lot of um, entrenched industry pushback of like this digital thing will never be as good as film. It'll, you know, it, it's, ne- you know, it's just, it's not the same thing. It's, it's, it's not going to be, it's not just not, you can't produce that. You just can't do it. It's, you know, it's too far away. And um, really everything, you know, within 10 years of that, it started to get to be hard to buy film because film companies that produced actual film, like the products to put in your camera were going out of business because of lack of demand, because, you know, consumers switched to digital and, and, you know, that um, transition just worked its way through the industry. And so, you know, computers continually get faster. You've got companies like NVIDIA and AMD and Intel that are constantly improving the technologies. I mean, you mentioned Jurassic Park. So that was the year I graduated from university myself in 1993. And I think that it's just mind boggling. If you were to open, uh, you know, a Wayback Machine or, you know, you know, do a little bit of uh, history sleuthing to find out what is the top of the line PC and Macintosh computer available in 1993. Um, and, and, and what we have commonly on our desktops right now that, that what our kids use to play Fortnite, you know, whether it's a console, I mean, most of our, our handheld devices. The phones are, yeah, the they're class, more powerful than you know, those. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but they're all connected to every other most powerful device on the internet at the same time. Like even back then there, there was like ethernet wasn't common. I mean, honestly, I, you know, email wasn't a thing that students had when I graduated from university in, in 93. Like I didn't have an email address when I graduated from university. AOL was kind of, you know, prodigy were, were kind of things that were, were developing. So in, you know, in 10 years, um, the, the power that we have on our desktops now that, that costs a few thousand dollars is probably going to be miniaturized. And so, you know, the things that we say are limiting about wearable devices that, that don't have the graphics fidelity that we would get out of, uh, you know, a workstation type of machine, it, it wouldn't surprise me if wearable devices actually have that kind of fidelity. And so what would you do with that technology? How could, you know, what could you do with AR, with VR, with other types of uh, interaction uh, when the power of a workstation, you know, fits on your belt buckle or on in your glasses. So uh, that'll be that, that that's what I'll say about what's coming in the next 10 years. Amazing. Well, another really quick one. Um, before we wrap is um, what would be your suggestion for a really great video to intro virtual production, particularly LED wall, Mandalorian style, et cetera, to an audience of non-technical producers, ideally like a sort of one minute video teaser that wows them and makes them want to buy into it. Oh, um, actually there are a few and I, I don't know 
if I can find their names really easily. Um, there's a studio in the UK called Simply Brilliant that has a couple virtual production demos. And what I like about their demos is that they take a very practical approach um, in that they're, they're demonstrating the use of LED wall virtual production for something small, like a commercial or like a TV, something that you would maybe normally shoot like in an office or in a home. And um, instead of going through all the effort to build out a physical set, uh, you know that you can you know, put together a digital one rather quickly, have it on that LED wall volume and shoot what might otherwise be a traditional shot. And um, you know, I think their demos show that you can, within a day or two, get through a dozen or more different locations, different lighting setups, different types of day, uh, time of day. Um, so that's one. And there's also a company, um, I can't remember if they're in New Zealand or Australia, that uh, has some virtual production demo uh, videos from that same type of indie film production type of, uh, of, of point of view. So I, I, I could search for it, but we'd run out of time waiting for me to yeah. find it. Um, but I, I find those to be the most compelling because they do share some behind the scenes. So you could see what's going on with the technology and you can also get a good inkling about what's so powerful about it. So you could push, you know, a minute, you know, a, a compact car into this studio and, you know, have someone sitting, moving the steering wheel and, and, but get a sense of reflections playing over that. It's not the same as a green screen, you know, that you're actually, you know, the actor has an environment to react to around them. And um, these are very, very practical setups that are not, you know, a galaxy far, far away with, you know, fantastic, you know, creatures and spaceships and things like that, but instead are very practical applications that you could see would be far more expensive and complicated to execute outside in the real world that become far more controllable and trivial um, inside a studio environment. So th those are two that I think stand out to me. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Well, um, I just want to say thank you very much, Nick, for joining us on this podcast. Um, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And as always, it's a, a pleasure talking with you. And um, thank you for yeah sharing sharing everything with our listeners. Um, to everybody out there, thank you also for joining us uh, on this podcast. Um, you can connect with us uh, in our Facebook group, Becoming a CG Pro, uh, on our YouTube channel. Um, please feel free to subscribe to that. We have our podcast on there and a number of other growing a growing body of videos on there. Um, we also run glasses in virtual production. So um, become cgpro.com. You can check out some of the things that we we do on that website. Um, and Nick, uh, do you have a good way that people can find out more about what you're up to as well? You yeah, to share any links I mean, to the university or? Uh... Absolutely. So I mean, the university website is drexel.edu. Um, so my last name hopefully is in your show notes somewhere because it's 
yeah. you know, 11 letters and only one of them is officially a vowel. So it's just, a, it's definitely a copy paste affair. But if you search Drexel in my name, it wouldn't take you long to find my email address. I certainly, you know, if, I, if I'm going to plug anything, I would say, if you know anyone in high school that's interested in pursuing this field, definitely, you know, send them our way because I mean, this, we, we literally have a degree program that, that's really focused in this. And um, our, you know, our students end up working in industry. We have co-ops, you know, so that, that you know, in between classes, they're actually working in industry. And, and so I'm really proud of that um, experience for our students. So uh, anyone who's already, uh, you know, out in industry and, and uh, you know, wants a really professional compact program, definitely the Becoming CG Pro uh, thing that you're doing is, is wonderful. Uh, but I'm also happy to address any questions and, and things like that. And so uh, that, I think that's all I have to share. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing it. And uh, yeah, again, thanks very much for, for being here with us. And um, we we will see you soon. We'll have another episode in, in two weeks. And yeah, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for having me.